You are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. All right, we're back, Primal Radio. This is part two with John Little. John, welcome back, brother. Thank you very much, Jim. Ah, uh, th- thank you. For, uh, thanks again for this. And this part, for the first part of our conversation, we talk uh, about obviously about your your writings with Bruce Lee and your experience and so on and so forth. There's a whole nother. Geez, you have written tons of books on fitness and in health and you own. I guess you own a, 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 a is it a fitness uh, facility up in uh, Canada? It's NautilusNorthSFS.com. Where is that? Uh, that is in a town called Bracebridge, about an hour and a half north of Toronto, and we are a very small one-on-one training center. Wow, it looks great. It looks neat and big. It really does. Now, we were talking earlier before a conversation, we'll get into all the training, that I didn't re- quite honestly realize I had owned some of your books from years ago on static contraction a lifetime ago, and I actually had used that stuff, <laughs> and it yeah. was great. And you have a new book out now, too, which is... Um, Body science, which I actually read this morning <laughs> to, to, to bang it out. Yeah, I have to go back and reread it because it was more of a top place, which is a great book. But uh, so, you know, as we were talking earlier, you got involved in the martial arts and fitness. Is this really where your passion lies? Is really in the fitness aspect more so than even martial arts? Or Yeah, I mean, I've kind of had a love-hate relationship with the martial arts throughout my life. But I can see that the need to be healthy, particularly as we get older, is paramount. But, you know, for me, it's been one of those uh, enterprises wherein the deeper you go into this subject, the less you're certain about. Um, yeah. Oh, that's really good. I'm going to steal that. Everyone's yeah. an expert. That's what I <laughs> That is so good. Well, that yeah, is- I think when I know that earlier in my earlier books, I was so passionate about my research and there weren't a lot of excise books that contained much research on the market back then. Not and at I, all pour through physiology textbooks and look at studies. And this was before really the internet was going in full force. So I, I didn't have easy access to this material. And uh, so I found out that these are what the scientists had uh, concluded. Therefore, these are the, the bedrock facts upon which to build a training system. And that's what I did. And almost every book represents uh, a different hitching post in my intellectual evolution of learning more uh, about the enterprise that I'm, I've been looking into for so many years. And my most recent book, which is called The Time Savers Workout, sort of is a distillation of everything I've learned over the past 30 years or so on exercise. But one thing I noticed, and perhaps you fellows have noticed it as well, is that things I used to believe, uh, even in the martial arts, I no longer believe. And the same is true with exercise. And by, in the martial arts example, when the martial arts started to get commercialized in a big way in the 70s, you would see demonstrations where one person would you know, flip all of his students, you know, whether it was Aikido or one of these things, yeah, yeah. or someone would come at him with a knife and he'd disarm him, and, and then someone was catching bullets with his teeth, and it just got more and more bizarre. But we didn't know better. We actually, at least I didn't, I thought this is legit. Wow, this is, you know, sign me up for how to develop that chi, you know. But then you look into this stuff and you recognize that these are students of the instructor cooperating. 
and that nobody fights like that in the real world. So it, it was nonsense. And the same is true I see in the fitness industry. They do have a supplement for this and a supplement for that. And all of that and the training and the classes and all of this are geared for one purpose. And that is to appeal to people that are unhappy with who they are right now. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yeah. to them to become something else other than what they are. And to me, that's a total bullshit pledge. And when I look into the matter now, you know, from my elder statesman point of view, <laughs> I see that everything is, everything we are, everything that we can be is mediated by our genetics. And that's the trump card that you cannot train your way out of, you cannot supplement yeah. your way out of. It's just, that's the reality. This is a fascinating place that I, that I really wanted to start on, John. Oh, you go ahead fire the questions but that's that's sort of like i say where am i where, where am I, my grumpy old codger self these days <laughs> one point you make really well in the book is that these programs are making everything seem very attainable and the reason why everyone wants to be big and strong and ripped is because it's so rare and if right. it wasn't rare then people wouldn't want it it would be you know be if it was easily attainable people wouldn't want to achieve those things well, and you see so much more of it that it wouldn't be that exceptional. Yeah, and then you talk about the genetic stuff. If I use myself as, a, as an example, I, I'm an ectomorph, as in, you know, I'm, I'm a naturally <laughs> slim build. Right. <laughs> That's just a fact, Jim. It's not funny. I, I, Tom's in Alice's. It's not Alice's. I'm laughing with you, Tom. Yeah, yeah, no, I just, <laughs> but there's, there's nothing wrong with that because oh, most, most of us tend to put on weight as we age. And if someone who is naturally ectomorphic, they're going to look fabulous when they're fit because they put on a little bit of weight. And the idea is not to, to be obsessive about it. It's the endomorphs and to some cases the mesomorphs that when you see them in later years, people go, wow, what happened? You know, <laughs> it, it, uh, because they it's muscle that they got very easily through genetics. And as that muscle diminishes over time, as it naturally does through the natural course of entropy, the amount of calories you are required to keep fat off your body gets lower, but they keep eating the same because they've never had a problem with it. Sure. They're 30 pounds overweight. Even the whole morphology is more of a psychological thing than a physiological thing. There's people that are thinner, there's people that are stouter, but you know the reality is we our genetics, for the most part, determine everything about us, from our height to our eye color, in some cases, even to how we think uh, or are inclined to think. And it certainly impacts any effect exercise can have on us. Everything has a cap. Muscle mass has a cap. Uh, cardiovascular efficiency has a cap. And that's because, you know, in the bigger picture, we are organisms that come from a long line of organisms that face starvation on a daily basis. So energy uh, acquisition and preservation were paramount to our survival. So this idea that we should be out recklessly squandering energy is completely foreign to our species. You do not see, for example, any other animal species jogging. Doesn't happen. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, right. And if you look at the big cats, like if you ever watched the Discovery Channel, yeah. these are huge, yeah. powerful creatures which have an adequate cardiovascular system for their lifestyle, and perhaps in some respects an envious, enviable cardiovascular lifestyle. What do they do? Sleep 20 hours a day. You know, and even a cheetah, which is one of the fastest land animals in existence, 
it doesn't throw the nitrous on its engine every time it goes out hunting. Instead, it hides in the tall grass. It looks for a straggler to get within 10 yards so it doesn't have to exert much energy. And then they bring it down. And it's only that, that prey gets away from it that it really you know, turns on the, the juice. So you know, I think we used to be like that because all animal species are like that until we sort of conquered agriculture. And then we went from being creatures in an environment of food scarcity to one of food abundance. But those same two attitudes of if you come upon energy, consume it because it might not be there tomorrow. And if you don't have to output a lot of energy, don't because you may not get it back from the environment. Those are still ingrained almost in our DNA. Consequently, we take this creature from an environment of food scarcity and we plunk them down in today's world of food abundance. And we have a perfect prescription for obesity because we're not inclined to output a lot of energy and we're compelled to want to consume as much as we can get our hands on. Why haven't we just all evolved to be like big and strong like Arnold Schwarzenegger? Because it had zero survival value. The way human beings survive is the use of their brains. That's our weapon. Figuring out things, you know, and the attack by drawing, if you want to use Bruce's uh, term. That's how we survive. We don't have the big natural strength of an elephant. We don't have the claws of a tiger. We don't have the swimming skills of a dolphin. We, we have to use rely on our brains. So in looking for food, it didn't behoove us to, to be toting around this huge musculature that required 4,000 calories a day to survive when the environment at the time might not yield 800 calories. Yeah. So consequently, our bodies evolved governors on how much muscle mass we can build, and um, with good reason, because... You know, if you have to create this metabolically expensive tissue to sustain and the environment doesn't produce enough energy to sustain it, you're dead. So and I think it's also one of the reasons why we t- our muscle mass tends to diminish as we age, um, because, you know, as our faculties diminish, our likelihood of acquiring the energy we needed to maintain our bigger, stronger selves uh, diminishes with it. So now we don't have to come into quite so much energy in order to preserve a lesser amount of muscle mass. John, you know there's these online tests now where you can send off your DNA and then they they tell you they can tell you all sorts of stuff about you, but they they they've, they've evolved that now for fitness. Mm. Is there any merit in doing that because you would would I find out things like my muscle density is x and if I eat more this then I can improve it. Yeah, I'm speaking out of ignorance on this because I really haven't looked into it that thoroughly, but I always tend to take a macro view on things so I can see what patterns there are. And the genome, the human genome, was only really cracked, what, eight years ago? Maybe a little more than that? Uh, Sounds about right, yeah. I could be wrong on that, but it hasn't been all that long. No. Um, And consequently, we have the brightest organic chemistry minds in the world still trying to figure it out. So if that's the case, what are the odds that somebody with a P.O. box in Biloxi, Mississippi, has figured out exactly what you need for your DNA? <laughs> you know, pretty remote. That's a good point. So none. I the answer is none. With a certain degree of skepticism, not to say that, that DNA testing is false or it doesn't work, and maybe in these cases it does work. I don't know enough about it. But I think you can still take a macro view on this and see what effect uh, certain activities have on you for good or bad and what uh, effects certain dietary op- options have on you for good or bad without um, spending money uh, with a potentially fraudulent test. Like there was a study that was done with ectomorphs 
who were put on the same essentially bodybuilding program as mesomorphs. And at the end of you know 12 weeks or so, the, the mesomorphs were significantly bigger and stronger. The mesomorphs were not, no change. So again, knowing this, when you flip through a magazine, it says you got to have your whey protein shake after every meal, or you've got to train like Ronnie Coleman did in order to build big muscles is you recognize it for the emperor's new clothes that the whole industry is, you know, it exists to sell you product full stop does not exist to do uh, dispense valid scientific advice because they'd have no market after a couple issues. (laughs) Right. So when you started in training and stuff, so you went through that evolution, you started off probably old school, like I did, you bought a magazine, you knew nothing, you started lifting and you started to educate yourself and try out new things. You were, you were always willing to, try and explore new ideas and, and methodologies when you were training and to gain that knowledge? Oh, for sure. I, I think mainly because I have a low threshold for boredom. So, you know, <laughs> you, if someone came up with something new, I was interested. I want to know, but I always want to know how it worked. Like explain the mechanics of it. Why is this going to do what you say it does? And if a guy went into some psychobabble about, uh, well, you know, it's the mitochondrial, this, this, that, it's like, well, you're not you know, run that tape back and play it again in my language so I can understand what it is you're saying. And usually when they did, you could see the flaws in what they were saying. And yeah. at nine times out of 10, they're selling something. You know, the supplement industry is one of my big pet peeves because they, it's just rife with, you know, uh, hucksterism. Um, it is. And it's unregulated. So, I mean, they can claim whatever well, they want. You know, the sure. supplement is fat. This one has, you know, it gives you energy. This one builds muscle. You know, the muscle building to the extent that it can be built is predicated on a stimulus, and that stimulus is a significant amount of energy output. So you have to do something very demanding with your muscles in order for your body to say, well, that left us without much energy when we finished doing it. So now we're going to build a slightly bigger gas tank for this guy. So the next time we hit this thing, it's not going to be as, as debilitating. So it's an energy output stimulus. Now, contrast that with what a supplement is. It's an energy input. There's no stimulus involved with that. A supplement cannot build muscle. There are muscle to be to be built. And, you know, most of us, especially anyone with a little bit of training experience, would be very lucky if they could gain 10 pounds of muscle for the rest of their training career. And it's not much, but in some respects, it's significant. But if you do the math on that, there's 600 calories in a pound of muscle. So multiply that by 10, you got 6,000. Divide that by 365 days in a year, and you see how minuscule your actual supplemental caloric requirements are. I did the math on that once. Those listening can certainly do it themselves. Yeah. Uh, but I think it comes out to it's 16 calories or 16.43 calories above your maintenance level. But here's the interesting part. Only 22% of muscle is comprised of protein. The remaining 88%, by far the greatest volume of muscle, is comprised of water, glucose, and organic materials. So of those 16.43 extra calories you require daily in order to maybe build 10 pounds of muscle this year, only 22% or 3.6 calories need to be comprised of protein, which is the equivalent of eating one quarter of the egg white from an egg. So when people are telling you, you got to buy this protein and you got to have all these scoops for what? Less than half an ounce of muscle, maybe growing a day. It's, you know, it's a racket. What's glycogen? I'm probably saying that wrong. But what's the function of that? 
glycogen. Yeah, am I saying that right? Probably wrong. Yeah, yeah. Glycogen is basically the gasoline of the muscular engine. It's its fuel. Every food you consume is converted to glucose. And when a, a bunch of glucose or a chain of it is stored in a muscle, it's called glycogen. But glucose powers everything you do. Um, your, your brain, your peripheral nervous system, your central nervous system derives roughly 100% of its nutrition from glucose. Uh, glucose is the fuel of muscular contraction after uh, adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which resides in the muscle almost as a residue is used up. So you, you move into glucose or glycogen pretty rapidly when you're training. So that's the big fuel. But, you know, the big secret is, you know, you could eat a Snickers bar and it'll become glucose. Or you can eat a, the finest whey protein, you know, thing out of the fitness industry and it'll become glucose. So that's, that's your fuel. Protein is a repair uh, nutrient. It's, uh, they call um, carbohydrates protein sparing because they spare protein for being used for its primary purpose, which is growth and repair. It repairs cells and organs and things of that nature. But it doesn't necessarily repair them to some monstrous size, you know. And if it was as simple as just consuming protein, and we've all been guilty of it. Uh, I remember I used to take 50 desiccated liver tablets a day because Vince Garanda said I needed it. Um, wow. Yeah, it was stupid, you know. But, <laughs> you know, nowadays I just, you know, I look at it and recognize I mean, the supreme role of genetics in this whole enterprise and see the uh, supplement salespeople for exactly what they are you know if you're eating a well-balanced diet you don't need supplements and the only way they can get you to buy them is to scare you by saying well your your food sources are tainted you know they're uh, you can't get real natural food like our ancestors did so you need to supplement with this well you know even if that were true there's nothing natural about a food supplement you don't see you know, vitamin E gel caps growing in the bushes in the wild. You know, these are uh, manufactured products. So, the, again, at the end of the day, these people are selling something. And um, that you always have to be, you know, kind of buyer beware with that. There's a great line from Voltaire, or at least it's attributed to Voltaire. And I tend to hear it echo in my brain whenever anybody speaks about being an authority on anything or has found the secret and want you to do it. And it is cherish those that seek the truth, but beware of those that find it. Oh, that's good. John, regardless of genetics, you are still an advocate of what, what I'll term bodybuilding or strength training and the big five being one, one aspect of that. Right. Could you talk to us, tell us, walk us a bit through why that's so important, how people should go about it? Well, I just find for, you know, that number one, we have a finite amount of time on this planet. So you don't want to spend it in activity that it has stopped or diminishes the results it gives to you. When you recognize that your results, any results from any form of physical activity, exercise, are genetically mediated, it behooves you to look for how little of that activity is required to accomplish what you, what you want. All the good things you can get out of exercise, increased bone density, regulation of body temperature, uh, maintaining a consistent basal metabolic rate, blood sugar tolerance, uh, maintaining muscle strength, uh, you know, sort of m trying to regulate fat content, aerobic capacity, cholesterol, all of these sort of things, blood pressure. You can accomplish that, whatever can be accomplished, through resistance training. Any other physical activity 
can also accomplish uh, these tasks. But the problem with it, with those other activities, is that they're of such a low intensity order that it takes you much longer to reach a meaningful level of fatigue whereby your body will enact a defense mechanism to produce an adaptation, a beneficial adaptation, a bigger, stronger muscle, for example. Um, and consequently, if anything is, a, is a low intensity, it's usually high volume. So every time you open and close a joint in performing these activities over a prolonged period of time, it's like a rope passing over a rock face. So there's wear and tear. And if you liken, or you can liken the hinge joints in your elbows and your knees to the hinges in your door. And they have a lifetime of use built into both of those. But if you were to go to your door and open and close it 10,000 times randomly, four days a week, you'd quickly wear out the hinges. And the same is true with the joints in the human body. You go for a, you know, a seemingly innocuous uh, half-hour bicycle ride. Well, you've opened and closed the hinge joints in your knee about 10,000 times. So what's the benefit? What do you get out of it that outweighs the negative? Well, in the, at the beginning, maybe you brought your cardiovascular system up and even your muscular system up from a, a subpar level to a par level. But once you reach that level, you're not going to drive up a higher level of adaptation by doing more of that activity. So knowing this, and what I like about resistance training is it'll get you to that same level of fatigue, and it'll do it a lot quicker with a lot less opening and closings of the joints and hence a lot less wear and tear. And if it's done properly, it can be done with a very low force, which can't be said for other activities, for example, running which yeah. can bring four times body weight onto your joints. So I'm an advocate of resistance training because it gives you all of the cosmetic benefits that one might seek from exercise and that exercise is capable of bestowing. But, and it also gives you all of the health benefits metabolically, which is sort of the portion of the iceberg that's under the water that we don't generally see or think about. Uh, and it can do it in a fraction of the time. For example, Let's uh, go back to our bike riding example. If you are riding a bike on a flat surface, you could go for hours and not really get fatigued because you're only ever using slow twitch muscle fibers, which are an endurance fiber and are typically uh, very slow to fatigue and very quick to recover. Yeah. But there's two other classes of muscle fiber, generally speaking, which are intermediate twitch and fast twitch fibers. And fast twitch fibers are referred to as glycolytic because they store the most glycogen. And Dumping the glycogen out of those muscles has tremendous health benefits. Well, I don't know that we need to go into it, but suffice to say, it, it, things like insulin sensitivity and cholesterol levels and things like that are, are directly impacted by, by tapping uh, fast twitch fibers. But now instead of riding on the flat, let's assume that you're now riding up a hill. On the flat, you're not even aware of your legs. You could be listening to music or talking to a friend who's also riding with you and, and you're engaged in the conversation. As soon as you start, you hit the base of that hill, you start to go up, gravity begins to pull against you. It's trying to pull you down the hill. So now your muscles have to work harder. And they're working at a rate that slow twitch fibers cannot recover as quickly from. So they have to reach out to intermediate twitch fibers to assist them. When that happens, you're aware something is going on in your legs. There's something metabolically happening. And now your conversation with your friend is stilted at best. But let's say you continue on and the grade gets greater. As you reach the summit, your legs are on fire. Well, that's fast twitch fiber exhaust. You're burning a lot of sugar out of those muscles. But 
let's say you continue to the point where you can't complete another revolution on uh, of the bicycle pedals and you get off and you walk up to the summit. Well, when you get to the summit, you notice that there's a profound cardiovascular effect taking place. You know, your heart's going like a trip hammer, you're sweating, your chest is heaving, uh, your muscles are sore and aching. But that really only occurred from maybe a minute's worth of pedaling up that last third of the hill. So all of the benefit that you got from that activity that day occurred in the last minute of demanding muscular work. Riding on the flat didn't produce that effect. Not at but, all. But you did open and close those joints a lot. And even the base of the hill, you know, if it stayed at that base, you could probably keep riding and you still wouldn't get that effect. So demanding muscular work is the synchronon of productive exercise. And there's different ways you can get it. You can sprint in running, you can sprint on a bicycle, or you can uh, engage or, or apply resistance to your muscles, much like gravity did on the hill uh, example. And the muscles have to output a tremendously greater amount of energy until there's simply no more energy left to output, and then it stops. And that means you've stimulated all three classes of muscle fibers, slow, intermediate, and fast. And that is a thorough workout. So I like the fact that you can do that and achieve that in clinical setting, and that the more demanding the muscular work, the briefer it has to be of necessity, just like the faster you run, the less distance you can run. Right, um, right. And then, because fast-twitch fibers don't share the same recovery profile as slow-twitch fibers, you don't train every day. It's not necessary to train them every day. And in fact, uh, some studies have shown that you, you can take upwards of 12 days off without any ill effect. But uh, right. we tend to train our clients once a week, particularly once they've you know, sort of... Uh, been training for a while and they're as close to their genetic potential as we can get them for the health benefit that a submerged part of the iceberg dumping the sugar out of the muscles and so you know long answer i guess to a very direct question you asked me but that's why i uh, tend to side with resistance training as being the best exercise by that we mean heavy lifting i.e weights not necessarily no it's just demanding muscular work now if you do your repetitions slowly so that the muscles don't get a break, they don't get to you know reload and recover at certain points in the range of motion. You don't have to use a super heavy weight. And in fact, it's better that you don't. You can control the forces, and it also is a good marker because when you're unable to move a lightweight, that's a much deeper inroad into your strength reserves than your inability to do a second rep with a really heavy weight. You know, for example, if you are bench pressing, pick a number, 200 pounds and you can't do another rep with it. Well, your strength level may have dropped to 199 pounds of force output, which is not enough to move 200 pounds. Right. But if you fail, you can't move 80 pounds. Well, you, you've made a much more significant inroad. You've drained way more resources out of your muscles than if you were using 200 pounds. And it will depend on the individual, depend on his fiber makeup, but that's also just a trial and error thing. Train until you know those muscles are either incapable of doing another rep or very close to not being able to do another rep. John, just one more question I wanted to ask. You've talked to people being able to do as little as 12 minutes a week, and obviously professional athletes are working out all day, every day. Um, right. Could you talk us through, you know, how realistic is that less is more? Well, I mean, there's only so many fibers you can activate. So if you're going to train in an inefficient way, yeah, you can train for longer periods of time. And if you're going to train in a manner that uses primarily slow twitch fibers, that is to say not particularly demanding, uh, you can train again the next day. But slow twitch fibers don't have much mass potential in terms of being able to increase their size or strength and are the lowest ones on the food chain. So 
it's sort of dumbing down, if you will, your exercises. It's, it's, I, I find that in the fitness industry, I mean, personal trainers are like lawyers. They look for billable hours. So if a well-heeled guy comes into a gym, they're going to try and get him in there four or five days a week because it's four or five times the revenue stream. But the reality is if you work someone hard and thoroughly, it's going to be self-evident to them that they're not up for it the next day. Now, athletes are a different species because two things. Uh, one is conditioning of the athlete, and the other is the skill training of the athlete. And those are two different uh, species of activity. Training a skill, you can train and, and should probably train every day. In hockey, it would be stick handling. And for someone playing the piano, it's practicing piano. In martial arts, it would be specific techniques. But you don't want to make it a conditioning exercise because those fibers do need to recover and adapt in order to grow stronger. And I'll, I'll put it this way to close out. When you're training, what your goal is is to trip the growth and repair mechanism of the body into motion. And that's the same mechanism that comes into play if you cut or you burn yourself. Now, the next time you cut or burn yourself, see how long it takes your body to produce a little bit of skin, a little bit of dermis to close that wound. It's usually seven days anyway. Right. So, so again, this is the same mechanism that you're hoping to engage when you're strength training. Now, let's agree that the burn or the cut is the stimulus that to your body to produce new skin. The same way that the workout is the stimulus for your body to produce more muscle. In the former case, would you hasten the growth and repair of that piece of skin by reopening the wound every day? Well, the answer is no, you wouldn't. I mean, recutting yourself is not going to make that wound heal quicker. Yeah, but yeah. people will voluntarily go into the gym and reapply that uh, stimulus of exercise, thinking that doing so produces the growth. But it doesn't. The, the, the workout is a stimulus that acts upon an organism, your body, and that body, if given sufficient time, will produce an adaptive response in the form of growth. But if you keep applying the stimulus on a daily basis, you, you simply short-circuit the process. It's very interesting talking to you, John, because some of the things I, I kind of realize I've been doing wrong, and, and, and that's despite having actually read your book. This just means I need to write more clearly, probably. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm not the I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I think listeners can uh, find out about all of this in your new book, The Time Savers Workout. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you again, guys. And I apologize for having to to go, but I do have a client here. <laughs> John, thanks so much, man. There's so much to ask and so much to go over. It's incredible. You got a wealth of knowledge, both in the geez, with the martial arts of Bruce Lee in the books and. And then uh, obviously with the fitness, if people need to get a hold of you, John, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, we have a, a website for Nautilus North, and I apologize, I don't have the HTML number memorized. But <laughs> well, it's it, Nautilus, it's it, Nautilus it, North, sfc.com. Thank you. That's, uh, <laughs> that, is, that has a contact info uh, there. Right. And look, if you just Google John, little, uh, you'll find all kinds of information. Wealth of knowledge, terrific guy. Thank you again, John, so Thank much you. for taking your time. And we will be back in touch, brother. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Tom. Pleasure speaking to both of you. Take care. You have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. 
Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.